1: Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White. And what the world needs now. is the News Roundup.
2: We never were fast. No such thing as writing a song in a day. Sometimes it would take five, six days to write something.
1: For the next hour, we catch up on a rowdy week of news, and we take time to remember Burt Bacharach. His music melted the hearts of millions. But back in Washington, President Biden returned to a familiar refrain.
3: Let's finish the job. we got to finish the job.
1: Well, let's finish the job. Lots for us to get to, and we're pleased to welcome back some of the best vocalists in the news business. Anita Kumar is Senior Editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm not going to try to sing. (laughs) (laughs) Neftali Ben-David is a politics editor at The Washington Post. It's great to have you.
4: It's great to be here. Thank you.
1: And here with me in studio in Michigan is Zoe Clark. Zoe is the political director for Michigan Radio. Hey, Zoe. Hi, Jen. I will not be singing either. <laughs> well, let's start with what can be a staid, if not stale, Washington set piece, the State of the Union. Not so this year. I'd like you all to weigh in with one word to describe what millions streamed and tuned in for on Tuesday. Zoe, you first. Spicy. All right. Navtali? Uh,
4: I'll go with Visceral. Visceral. Visceral.
5: Okay, and that comes to you, Anita. Well, I'm going to actually say 2024 because I thought it was very campaign-like. All right. Well, it got off to a bipartisan start.
3: I start tonight by congratulating 118th Congress and the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. But the evening will be remembered
1: for this moment.
3: Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm
1: glad to see you. And I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. We got this message from Pete. I have to say that the State of the Union is terrible. Anarchists, as exemplified by Marjorie Taylor Greene, have established a firm toehold in the Republican Party. The camel's nose is in the tent. Now, Tali, other than the noise, what stood out to you about the speech?
4: Well, what stood out to me was that this sets the stage for the next two years. I think President Biden wants to run against the Republican House. And the reason he use the word visceral is because you could sense the visceral dislike on both sides towards each other. In fact, President Biden extended the exchange, essentially, for the days that followed, when he was in Madison, Wisconsin, and in Tampa, Florida. He continued to bring up the back and forth. He continued to talk about Social Security. You know, he's not going to have an official opponent for a while. So as long as he can run against Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gaetz as the face of the Republican Party, he's going to do that. So in some sense, we saw the kickoff of all that last night, but we're going to keep seeing it, I think, for months and maybe the next couple years. Zoe,
1: so as someone who covers politics far from the beltway, what did you take away?
6: Oh, I mean, it was a fascinating... fascinating... Fascinating spectacle, right? And something that, although you know, we can go back to 2009 and the congressman, you know, Joe Wilson yelling out, "You lie!" to then President Barack Obama. This was different. It felt almost like a House of Commons, right, and and Parliament. Um, And it's not something that we are used to necessarily seeing uh, in the decorum of Congress in the United States. But I think we're also seeing that. uh, that change a little bit particularly mm-hmm. after this intense fight for speaker of the house and the ruckus that we saw on the floor when that was going on and then of course the awful images from January 6 it feels almost like is this one more uh, little little sort of bit uh, at the foundation mm-hmm. of of what we have Come to sort of describe as norms of the democratic process, you know, at the Capitol.
1: Yeah. Anita, you said 2024, and Neftali says he thinks this is, is President Biden making a move to run against a certain part of the GOB, GOP in, in particular. What are you thinking we'll see between now and the next presidential election?
5: Yeah. I mean, the reason I said that was exactly what Neftali said, but I just felt like it was his moment to tell Democrats and to show the supporters that he still has those skills he needs uh, to run another time. If you look at some of the polls, you talk to some of the Democrats, they're concerned. You know, with his age, they they wonder if he's he has it in him to do this next campaign to, to you know, serve another four-year term. He would be 86 at the end of a second term if he wins a second term. So, you know, I think this was his moment that he wanted to show, look, he can give this big speech. He can go toe to toe with these Republicans. He can he can do this. And I, I do know in the White House, they were sort of cheering that back and forth that you talked about with Republicans. And they thought this really showed that. I, I will say there was one other thing that it really struck me and perhaps not surprising, but there were really no major new initiatives that he put out there. It was you know, really a reality setting in that this is divided government. You know, if you think back to his speeches the last couple of years, there was a Democratic-controlled Congress, even though it was very, very uh, slim majority there in the the Senate, but he was calling for trillions of dollars in new spending. And we're just not really seeing that it was, let's finish this job that we've already started. It wasn't Here are 10 new big, huge things that I want to do.
4: Jen, if I could add one other thing. This is sort of what Democratic presidents do. In other words, President Clinton and President Obama both lost the House to Republicans in their first midterm and then spent the next two years running against. The House Republicans, whether it was Newt Gingrich, whether it was Tom DeLay. I think that's what Biden has in mind here. He's going to run against, again, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and so forth. Whether he's successful, I don't know, but that's been a blueprint that's worked for the last two Democratic presidents.
1: Well, I want to turn to some polling. Uh, Anita, you alluded to this. A Washington Post ABC News poll from before the address found that 62% of Americans think the president has accomplished not very much or little or nothing so far. Zoe, I mean, how concerned are Democrats about? polling numbers, even two years out from a presidential election. Yeah, I mean, they're not great, right? When you see that 37
6: percent, and that's Democrats, 37 percent, um, who want him to run again for a second term. I think the issue, though, for Democrats is there's no one necessarily in waiting, right, who is sort of that next best idea. Um, you know, before the State of the Union, there were some really, really, hard-hitting pieces against Vice President Kamala Harris, sort of setting up what some folks are saying, just sort of the ineptitude, right? And so, again, you're not seeing anyone. And so it's sort of like, okay, if not Joe Biden, then who? And that almost seems to be working for him, as well as what seemed to be sort of this disunity uh, within, you know, the GOP. Anita, your take on mean, do
5: you see anyone in waiting? I mean, there's a lot of people out there. We saw them run last time, right? Mm-hmm. Members of the cabinet, you know, governors, some senators, members of Congress. But the but the real question is, you know, is Joe Biden going to run? All indications are that he is. Um, you know, and if he's out there, obviously there's not going to be anyone else on the Democratic side. They are going to have to unite around the sitting president uh, moving forward. But but as you've alluded to in those polls, and when you talk to Democrats around the country, they are concerned. Um, they do feel like there's, or many of them feel like there, there's a need to have someone new, someone younger, uh, you know, the next generation, you know, we sort of saw that in the, in the house when Speaker Nancy Pelosi sort of stepped aside as being the leader and, and let someone else come in to be the leader of the Democrats. So it's going to happen at some point, of course, and we just have to see what, what Joe Biden is thinking. But I think the state of the union gave us a good idea of what he's thinking about his future.
1: We got this comment from Sean who tweets, Biden is not the candidate the Dems will need to win in 2024. He's too old for the job, regardless of his qualifications. But Jim on Twitter has a different take. I'm not hearing anyone talking about doddering old Joe Biden. He clearly outfoxed the MAGA wing of the GOP at the State of the Union. Well, I want to stay with the speech for a moment. Here's a part of the speech that deals with policing. We need
3: to rise to this moment. We can't turn away. Let's do what we know in our hearts that we need to do. Let's come together to finish the job on police reform. Do something. Do
4: something.
1: Naftali, do something. Given a divided Congress, what does that mean? In the words of Tyree Nichols' mother, how does something good come from this?
4: Well, it definitely was a very dramatic thing to have Tyree Nichols' parents there. I mean, presidents, of course. Have guests these days at the State of the Union, but rarely is it somebody like that who just lost their son, who just buried their son, and suddenly they're in this uh, kind of ornate environment. But I think you know a lot of Biden's proposals that he made were things that are not going to happen in the next two years. They're very unlikely to. That whether it's police reform, whether it's you know voting rights, uh, whether it's an assault weapons ban, he was saying those things to shape his political identity and to deliver a message for his potential reelection. I mean, in some sense, this was his first campaign speech of the 2024 campaign. And so I think some of those things were said not because they'll happen imminently, but because they're what he's going to run on and what he wants, who he wants to be
1: uh, in the next election. Zoe, I see you nodding.
6: Right. It's aspirational. Right. It's this idea of these are what we want to run as as the Democratic Party. And here are our deals. I thought one of the um, notes that I saw after the speech, which was very interesting. I think it was on The Nation that said, Tyree Nichols' parents don't need applause. They
1: need an apology from Congress. We got this tweet from Red Wolf, who says, Jen, you weren't bad with the singing. Just need some more practice to get smoother. Well, to (gasps) quote a Star Trek doctor, Red Wolf. I'm a radio host, not a singer. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals, backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank. Their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash Commercial, a member FDIC.
7: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident.
1: Let's get back to the conversation and stay with the State of the Union for the moment. As we know, with every State of the Union, there's also a rebuttal. Arkansas's new Republican governor stepped up this year and told those watching that America was, quote, under attack from left-wing culture wars.
8: Every day we are told we must partake in their rituals, salute their flags, and worship their false idols. All while big government colludes with big tech to strip away the most American thing there is your freedom of speech.
1: Naftali, why did the GOP choose Sarah Huckabee Sanders?
4: Well, they chose her in many ways because she epitomizes both the pre-Trump Republican Party, since her father was a governor of Arkansas before Trump. She epitomizes the Trump era because she was spokeswoman for the Trump White House and, of course, the post-Trump era since she was elected after he departed from office. But I was a little bit struck by the rhetoric that she used. There was none of this. I respect my opponents and their patriots. I just disagree with them. She said the line in America now isn't between left and right. It's between normal and crazy. Uh, there's a woke mob that's running the country. Our children are taught to hate each other. On account of their race, the language was very unbridled, very unrestricted, um and it was a very different message and sort of approach from President Biden. In a way, it was roads and bridges on the one hand versus fire and brimstone on the other. And I think it shows in a way the different place that the two individuals and the two parties are. Biden is likely to be his nominee. He could offer these broad, pragmatic ideas, uh, and the Republican party still is fighting for who it's going to be. and so there was
1: a lot of appeal to the base, and there was a lot of that kind of rhetoric. Zoe, what do you think her speech tells us about how the GOP wants to frame the political debate in the months to come. I would
6: almost say, at least from a a Michigan viewpoint, and we can go back to the November election, that they didn't necessarily learn any lessons from the last election. Here in Michigan, we had a gubernatorial candidate, Republican, who ran exactly on these issues. Culture wars, uh, the radical left, a book banning. Uh, And we had uh, this sort of uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Democrat, running on pocketbook issues. Right. And what we saw is the governor, Democrat, winning by huge margins. And yet, what we're seeing, it seems again, is Republicans nationwide deciding still to double down. And as Neftali said, speaking directly to the base. But what we know is that that base, unless they can get huge turnout, isn't enough to win these larger elections. And so,
1: really, it was who was that audience? And I don't know that it was for all Americans. We got this comment from Greg who says, Regarding the State of the Union, I find myself thinking how hard we as a people are to please. The nation isn't at war. The unemployment rate is at an all-time low. The infrastructure is being rebuilt. And we're still dissatisfied. Holy mackerel. Anita, as you think about the the months leading into the next presidential election, what are the issues you think are going to stick with voters?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You can see what Sarah Huckabee Sanders and President Biden said um, and and see where they sort of think they're going to be, right? Joe Biden talked a lot about the economy and sort of blue-collar workers and, and what's ahead and how to try to, you know, as he kept saying, finish that job, right, to continue to work on the economy. You know, I was struck by, you know, some of the things I think we'll talk about maybe a little bit later, but, you know, there wasn't as much as international... Uh, news as I would have thought, or talk from him. Uh, I think he and and Sarah Huckabee Sanders are are sort of showing what they think it's going to be. You know, listening to Sand Governor Sanders, it wasn't. You know, her her conversation wasn't really that surprising. This is the rhetoric she's used. Um, clearly, the Republican leaders on Capitol Hill who chose her to do this knew sort of what she was going to talk about. That she was going to talk about. Uh, you know, sort of, as she said, the culture war issues. She was going to talk about education, things that have been uh, pretty, pretty, you know, that, that some Republicans have done pretty well about, you know, these kitchen table issues they're trying to talk about. She talked about uh, fighting for freedom. That's something we're going to continue to hear Republicans talk about. So I think they set the stage for what the parties are going to be talking about the next two years. But they're they're pretty different. Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, Anita, we heard a little about Russia and China, but but
1: not much. And if Tali, why do you think Biden steered away from international issues?
4: Well, I think that he felt like his message was a pretty simple one, which was, we Democrats try to make your life better. You know, we make your prescription drug prices lower. We, uh, you know, we even get rid of fees that airlines charge. You know, we, we bring jobs, we fix bridges. I mean, he wanted to really connect as much as possible with what he sees as a swing blue collar voter. He called his agenda several times a, a blue collar blueprint. It's something he has said in the past. And I think that's what he thought Americans wanted to hear. That's what he thinks Americans vote on. And for all that issues like Ukraine and China are, of course, uh, very important. Um, He stuck pretty closely to that message. It worked for him in 2020. And I think he thinks it'll work again.
1: Well, let's get to some updates on a probe into January 6th. Former Vice President Mike Pence has been subpoenaed by the special counsel investigating the attack on the Capitol. The Department of Justice has been negotiating with Pence for months. Anita, how significant is this subpoena?
5: Well, we don't know every, you know, all the details about what this is, but what we do know is that this relates to obviously the 2020 election and sort of President Trump's uh, efforts there. I, I mention that because there's there's sort of another track that the special counsel is taking, and that's looking into documents that have been marked classified and whether President Trump. Uh, you know, how how they came into his possession at his home, you know, in Mar-a-Lago in Florida. So there are two things that are being investigated. This appears to be, from what we've heard, uh, just on, on the one. You know, it is significant. Uh, Vice President uh, Pence had been you know, there were a lot of people that wanted to hear from him during the January sixth hearings. They they wanted to know more. There's no one really that's going to know as much as as the as the vice president then about what was going on. Remember, he was the key. You know, there was that key moment when he uh, was presiding over the of you know over you know at the Capitol on January sixth, and you know, obviously, President Trump wanted to do do something different than than what the vice president did. There were had to be a lot of interactions there. And what uh, we assume investigators want to know is they want to know more about what President Trump was doing. So it is significant. It's an interesting time for the vice president. We expect him to, to be looking into and possibly running for uh, for president himself in 2024, running against uh, President Trump. And, and it just puts this interesting dynamic out there, what's going to happen. The, sort of the big question here now is whether President Trump tries to exert uh, and say that he has executive privilege here, that the conversations and the things that happened around what the vice president knows shouldn't be out there and shouldn't be told to investigators. And we're going to see what's going to happen with that. It's something he's tried over and over again, has been largely unsuccessful, but expect that he would probably go that way again.
1: Well, let's turn now to some house news. On Tuesday, a group gathered at the Capitol to call for GOP representative George Santos's removal from Congress. The group included constituents of the New York congressman and several Democratic lawmakers. Santos has admitted to fabricating parts of his personal and professional biography. A former prospective staffer also accused him of sexual misconduct earlier this week. Santos continues to be the center of multiple controversies. He's already stepped down from his house committees. Neftali, how likely is it he'll step down from Congress?
4: It doesn't seem very likely. I mean, he has said repeatedly that he's you know he was voted in by all these people, and until they vote him out, you know he's staying where he is. I mean, the other really interesting uh, sort of confrontation that happened at the State of the Union is that Mitt Romney uh, very visibly went up to Santos and basically told him to uh, you know to sit down. And it was striking because Romney nobody epitomizes the old line Republican Party more than Mitt Romney. You know he believes in courtesy, he believes in decorum, he believes in business, and nobody epitomizes the new Republican Party more than Santos, where truth is. Fluid and where you sort of say what you need to say, regardless. And so, to have those two people in confrontation in full view, it wasn't just two individuals colliding; it was like two worldviews colliding.
1: Well, ahead of the State of the Union, Romney had this to say about his GOP colleague:
3: He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't be in the. In the it, look, he's a sick puppy. Uh, he, he shouldn't
2: be. He shouldn't be My there. Sir.
1: Now, on Tuesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told CNN that the House Ethics Committee will launch an investigation into Santos. He later clarified that Santos is the subject of complaints from the committee. Zoe, where do Republicans stand on this?
6: Well, look, it's not a good look. And it just is a drip, drip, drip. Um, I mean, every single day it feels like there are new allegations and new stories that are coming out. Um, and Republicans need the votes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, it's a close majority that they have. And so they have to walk a really fine line. It is not a good look. For Democrats, um, sure, I think on the surface, uh, many of them are saying, as Romney did, uh, that this is disheartening to the institution. Um, but politically speaking, this doesn't hurt the Democrats as they continue to bring up that this is the kind of member that Republicans seem to be okay with. And so it has Speaker McCarthy dealing of with a big issue very early on in his uh,
1: speakership. Well, Anita, beyond the politics, let's not lose sight of Santos's constituents. What does this mean for them?
5: Yeah, um, well, it means they're being represented by someone who's clearly not going to be effective since he has, uh, you know, he is not going to be serving on those committees. Um, and we really don't know, uh, you know, what what he's going to be able to do, right? Um, you know, we do know that some of his Republican uh, colleagues and many, uh, if not all of his Democratic co- colleagues are sort of shunning him, saying that he shouldn't be there. So uh, it remains to be seen. Obviously, there's lots of things that congressional offices do for constituents separate from sort of the legislation. And and we'd have to see sort of how that goes. But it, it does look like he's continuing to do that and, and he's not going to be leaving and his office is up and running. So, uh, you know, what does it mean? It means that if he sticks around for the next couple of years, if, you know, something else doesn't happen um, with this possible house investigation and then, of course, these other outside investigations, criminal investigations and other things, uh, you know, they'll have their opportunity in two years to to decide whether he should stay in office again.
4: Uh, uh, Also, referring somebody to the ethics committee, it's an old trick, you know, and I don't mean to say that he shouldn't be. But what happens now is every time McCarthy is asked about this, he can say, well, the ethics committee is looking at it. Let's talk about it after the ethics committee probe. You know, they're investigating. And so um, I think in some ways it's, it's, it's a convenient place for him for Santos to be.
1: So you want to jump
4: in. I was too? just
6: gonna say also, I don't think anyone should be surprised either. Uh, you know, I've heard from folks going, Why doesn't he just resign already? It's like look at the allegations. What has led anyone to believe as you look at the character that has been made out in in news reports, led someone to believe that suddenly this gentleman is going to have a change of heart and just step down. I mean, I think we really have to thread who this personality is and understand, too, that it looks like he's in it uh, for for the good unless Republicans, again, who are in the majority in the House, are actually going to do something about
1: it. Alice had this to say about the State of the Union Address. Younger people can't judge the abilities of older people. She's talking here about President Biden. They haven't experienced old age yet. This is an individual matter. It's time to get over stereotyping. And Ken has this to say, I've had concerns about his age, but President Biden continues to prove me wrong. Well, let's move on. It's time we talked about that balloon. The Chinese spy balloon met its watery end on Saturday off the coast of South Carolina after being shot down by an F-22 fighter jet. Here's what the State Department spokesperson Ned Price said about the balloon on Thursday.
2: When a surveillance balloon uh, goes into your airspace uh, with the express point of collecting intelligence on countries around the world, uh, that would strike us to be a
5: violation of sovereignty.
1: The state department says the balloon was part of a fleet of balloons linked to the Chinese military. The US wasn't the only country that had one fly into its airspace. Anita, it's still early, but how much do we know about the balloon's capabilities?
5: Yeah, they're still they're still trying to get pieces and and figure that out. I think they're starting to investigate. So they as you alluded said that the balloon was capable of conducting signals intelligence collection operations and as you mentioned was part of this this fleet that had flown over more than 40 countries across five continents. So uh, it was, they have determined it was operating with sort of electronic surveillance technology capability, tech, uh, you know, its capabilities um, of monitoring U.S. communications. But it's really sort of unclear what it did uh, seem to monitor, what there, there's some uh, reporting out there that, you know, once it was detected, uh, it wasn't able to monitor, that it was no longer monitoring, right? That that was uh, was being thwarted. So it's a little bit unclear about what they did get. And I think that we're going to learn more as they collect that material and, and really investigate. Uh, obviously, there are uh, members of Congress that want to know more. They're already asking for more. They're asking for uh, briefings and starting to get some of those. And I would expect that they're going to be hearings. There's been a lot of criticism of the administration of, uh, about how it was handled and why they didn't shoot down the, the balloon earlier. And so that the response, as well as how it got here and how it was able to be here, are going to be things that we're going to be hearing about in the coming weeks, maybe months.
1: Natalie, how is China responding to U.S. statements about the balloon? Well, they've sort of been flustered,
4: I think. I mean, they at first said it was just a, uh, a weather balloon that had drifted off course, you know, and then they said that too much was being made out of it and they blamed politicians, they blamed the press. I think one of the interesting things is to see the way the administration is using this, I think fairly deftly that to throw the Chinese on the defensive, you know, when they claimed it was a weather balloon, you know, then they sort of revealed intelligence about the multiple antennas that are on it. And they talked about 40 countries that have been subject to this balloon surveillance. They've declassified information. They're talking to these countries, part of the push and pull between the U.S. and China for the allegiance of those nations. So they're really seizing this moment in this long, intense diplomatic dance with China to try to throw their opponents kind of off course, and I think with some success.
1: Hmm. Zoe, I'd love to hear your take on this as well, because we're talking about American people looking up in the sky and just and there's this enormous balloon up there, and and how is it? Like in a place like Michigan, right. how are people responding to this news outside of the Beltway?
6: Right. And and that it becomes almost this, uh, and I don't want to uh, minimize, but this sort of pop culture moment, right? We saw on Saturday Night Live uh, a whole skit about the balloon. I think it just goes again, truthfully, to this sort of like, where are we at right now? <laughs> right? Like, can we not all agree on these very huge issues. And so instead, what we see is this sort of hand-wringing and Republicans quick to sort of uh, condemn Biden and the military. And we could all just take a moment and take a breath, I think would be real helpful right now in this moment. Surrounding this balloon.
1: (laughs) We're rounding up the news this week. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment.
7: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile.
0: Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com.
9: Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Back to the roundup in a moment, but first, a tribute to one of America's most prolific songwriters, Burt Bacharach.
5: Walk on by.
1: Walk on by. Chances are you know one or a few of Burt's songs. Rain. Bert died in his Los Angeles home on Thursday, surrounded by family. Born Bert Freeman Bacharach in Kansas City, Missouri, he grew up in New York City. His mother made him learn piano as a kid, among other instruments. He was a huge fan of jazz. It wasn't until the 60s that Bacharach would find success as a composer. He teamed up with lyricist Hal David and, well, gave the world some memorable pop tunes.
9: When there is always something there to remind
8: me Always
1: Bacharach won many accolades during his decades-long career, including Emmys, Oscars, and Grammys. He continued performing into his 80s. Burt Bacharach was 94.
0: Why do birds suddenly
9: appear Every time you are near Just like me, they
2: long to be
9: close to you
1: Well, let's get back to the roundup with this comment we got from Caitlin on the balloon. I think it will be important for the administration to clarify how they will address these kinds of threats better in the future without letting a possible security threat cross the entire country next time. I need to really, really quickly, how is the Biden administration responding to this balloon? But we also learned that this isn't the first time this has happened.
5: Right. Trump officials were surprised, former Trump officials were surprised when the current administration said, well, look, this happened during the previous administration. And they said, you know, we saw a lot of people coming out and saying, look, we didn't know about that. Uh, What we heard is that um, this happened during the previous administration, I think about three times but that it wasn't detected until later, until President Biden was in office. Uh, there are a lot of questions about that. How is that possible? And, you know, why did it take that long and how did they detect? We don't know the answers to those. And and so I suspect that that is going to be, you know, a lot of what we hear uh, in the coming weeks and months sort of, How can we prevent this from happening again? And then how can how can we detect it right away?
1: Well, Neftali, just just give us a bit of a gut check here, because we're talking about national security issues. And the White House may never be as transparent with the American people as the American people want them to be when we're talking about this kind of issue. So what what should we expect to hear from them?
4: Well, I think that the Pentagon has made it pretty clear that they are embarrassed by this and the fact that they were not able to detect five... Uh, ob- In fact, apparently they initially thought they were what we used to call UFOs. Now they're called unidentified aerial phenomena, but, you know, UFOs. And, um, you know, they're going to have a serious investigation as to how this was allowed to happen. Nobody's pretending that this was okay. You're right, we probably won't hear the details because it's going to be classified, but there's going to be congressional investigations and there's going to be administration reports, I'm sure, about how to avoid this happening in the
1: future. Well, let's turn now to what appears to be a domestic threat. In a Monday briefing, U.S. officials said they arrested two people accused of planning to damage a power grid in Baltimore. One of those people, Brandon Russell, is a neo-Nazi group leader. Naftali, what exactly were these two planning?
4: Well, these uh, two people were allegedly planning to take out five power substations that ring Baltimore, uh, apparently in the hopes of sort of Paralyzing the city, or or having it degenerate into chaos. Um, You know, I think it's a it's a reminder that we talk a lot about cybersecurity, and rightly so. But there's a very vulnerable bricks and mortar, so to speak, infrastructure, critical infrastructure that also is at risk. And this thing about attacking power substations seems to be catching on in the extremist community. You know, there were a couple that were taken down in North Carolina not long ago. There was half a dozen in the Northwest that were uh, attacked. Um, And uh, you know, one of the questions I think you have to ask. is does the current environment embolden extremists somehow? You know, our our conversation is so coarse. There's so much talk about hatred and about the evils of the government and so forth that uh, you've got to wonder if some of that rhetoric is increasingly going to translate into action. Zoe, I'd love to hear your
1: your take on this.
6: Well, yeah, I mean, just to notice uh, what Neftali said, uh, George Washington University's program on extremism, in fact, found between 2016 and 2022 that 13 people with ties to the white um, supremacist movement have been charged in federal court, specifically about attacks on the energy system. Um, Here in Michigan, uh, Michiganders know and across the the country because it made national news in 2020 when there was a kidnapping plot uh, against our governor, uh, sitting Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, And I think this goes to show that it does feel societally like there is this rise, right? And and, um, especially internal threats, Mm -hmm. right? These aren't, you know, we're talking about the balloon and we're talking about threats from China or Russia. Um, But these are internal, homegrown threats and they are on the rise. And we are seeing that um, with this story this week. And again, as I mentioned, in in Michigan, where these plotters are are being sentenced as we speak.
1: Anita, how much focus is there um, on Capitol Hill, in the White House, on these internal threats and how to to prevent them or protect
5: our infrastructure from them? Is that still top of mind? Yeah, I think that it's getting more and more attention uh, for all the the cases that we just talked about and just heard about in those three different, three three or four different states. And now we have this one in Maryland. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security had issued a, you know, a bulletin, a warning, if you will, that said the United States is in a heightened threat environment um, and that critical infrastructure is among the targets. So it's it's out there. The administration knows this, and, you know, and they are going to be looking at this. You know, security experts have said that some of this electric, electrical infrastructure is attractive to target um, by some because it's really accessible and obviously very fragile, right? And it impacts individuals and businesses and hospitals and, you know, really all of us. And, you know, there are some now calls from people saying, look, if if this is the case and the federal government knows this, they need the federal government to come in and sort of make these things not as fragile. Some, you know, harden it in some way and make make these lines and this electrical uh, equipment hard to get to and hard to uh, sabotage. And so I think that's going to be as we see more of these cases. We're going to hear more of that debate about who is responsible and how we can prevent this.
1: Well, one more note on uh, the balloon news. We got this from Martin in Tennessee, who says the U.S. regularly flies surveillance aircraft over waters that China claims is part of its territory. Given that we have shut down a Chinese surveillance aircraft over our territory, I am concerned that they will respond in kind. Now, have we heard anything about the White House uh, uh, from the White House about possible repercussions of this move?
4: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely some concern about that. But I think there is a big difference between territorial water, I mean, waters that China claims as its own and the mainland United States. And I think it's pretty much widely accepted in the intelligence community that some things are sort of typically done, but this is beyond that, and that this is really a violation of the norms that have built up over the years.
1: Well, let's move on to some economic news. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said the Federal Reserve would likely continue to raise federal interest rates to curb inflation
2: this process is likely to take quite a bit of time. Uh, it's
10: not going to be, uh, we don't think, smooth. It's probably going to be bumpy. And so we think that we're going to need to do further rate increases, as we said, and we, we think that we'll need to hold policy at a restrictive level for a period of time. Then comes the uh, the, the uh, labor market report for January. And it's very strong. It's certainly stronger than anyone I know expected. <clears throat> and so, But but I would say, we didn't expect it to be this strong, but I would say it it kind of shows you why we think that this will be a, a, a process that takes a significant period of time.
1: That's Powell speaking at the Economic Club in Washington on Tuesday. Uh, Naftali, what could this strong jobs report we saw this week mean for future rate hikes?
4: Well, I think Powell's made it pretty clear that it means that they're likely and that any hopes that some in the business community may have had, that the rate hikes would slow down, are probably not going to come to pass. We're in a very strange situation where, by a lot of neutral measures, the economy is just going gangbusters. I mean, the job growth is really, I mean, it is literally unprecedented. Uh, Inflation still remains high by historic standards, but it's slowed down a bit. But I think what's also undeniable is that despite all that, Americans feel a lot of anxiety. It's not like this has promoted a feeling of, you know, security and prosperity. Prosperity and optimism. On the contrary, all the polls show that people feel anxiety, restlessness about the economy, about the finances, but I think also about COVID and social turmoil. And so this is the line that not just the Fed, but President Biden and other politicians are trying to walk to say, look, things really are pretty good. But hey, we get that it doesn't feel like that to you and that there's more that has to be done.
1: Well, in the State of the Union this week, President Biden made a call for higher taxes for billionaires and corporations. I'm a capitalist, but pay your fair share.
3: I think a lot of you at home, a lot of you at home agree with me and many people that you know, the tax system is not fair, it is not fair. Look, the idea that in 2020, 55 of the largest corporations in America, the Fortune 500, Made $40 billion in profits and paid zero in federal taxes?
1: Zero? Folks, it's simply not fair. Zoe, Biden's economic plan also calls for a tax on corporate stock buybacks, as we heard there. What are some of the details of this proposal? Right. So this all goes back to sort of this more populist
6: message, Right. And that, again, as we were talking earlier, that this is about aspirations. You know, you're not going to get House Republicans to get on board with this. And so all of these details are really, again, about him trying to I was about to say win back. He won them right in in, uh, 2020. But make sure that uh, working class voters are with him. And that's, again, why we saw, you know, the president right after the speech go to Wisconsin and then go to Florida. Um, and so it's really a fascinating thing to see, again, how this president is trying to talk about the economy, talk about pocketbook issues, and really pit the Democrats against, you know, these billionaires who many feel, and they are, you know, not paying their fair share in
1: taxes. Well, as we heard somebody say there, Neftali, there's a little likelihood we'll we'll see any of these proposals pass. How are Republicans making the case for for their pushback? Yeah.
4: <laughs> Well, they say I think what they what they've always said, which is that Democrats, of course, they want to raise taxes, and they say they just want to raise it on the wealthy. But you know, folks, they're coming for you next. I mean, that's their argument, and their argument also is Biden is not addressing the real problems in this country: high crime, high immigration, inflation. You know, he just wants to be a socialist and take you know money away from you and give it to the government. Um, you know, one of the big dividing lines, maybe the biggest in American politics these days, is between people with a college degree and people without. And Biden was very careful to be aiming, in part, at people people who don't have college degrees. He said that the jobs that he's created, the great majority of them don't require a college degree. He was able to peel off a few of those voters, an important group uh, in the last election. He's trying to do that again.
1: I want to quickly touch on some sporting history. Coming to the end of the third quarter, LeBron James, has shot in history,
0: and there it is! LeBron
2: stands alone!
1: On Tuesday LeBron James surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's 1989 points record to become the NBA's all-time leading scorer. Now Zoe, I know you are a basketball aficionado and James's latest accomplishment has reignited debates about whether he's the the greatest basketball player of all time. I need to hear, I need to hear from you <laughs> Zoe, is he
6: Basketball, right? That's the one with the the little, like, small green ball. You play it on the volleyball. The (laughs) The The hockey sticks. No, I mean, look, yes, we're joking. I'm not the biggest sports ball uh, fan. But this is a fascinating just feat, right? I mean, 38,000 overall points, as you mentioned, uh, beating decades-long record. I mean, even if you're not a sports fan, you have to look at this and just go, oh, my God. goodness. (laughs) goodness.
1: <laughs> well, Fox Sports predicts that as many as 115 million viewers are getting ready to watch the Super Bowl this Sunday between Philadelphia and Kansas City. Many of those watching are getting in on the action with their wallets. The Super Bowl betting is expected to reach a record $16 billion, with a B, dollars this year. That's according to the American Gaming Association. Anita, what do we know about the explosion of this
5: market? yeah, I just when I saw the number, I just did not believe it. I guess I'm not one of those that partake in that. So, you know, they're saying that it's um they' it's gone up so much because um, that there are just, it's more, it's legal in more places than it ever has been. So I think you mentioned some of the numbers that's actually, they're talking about 20% of the U S population. So if you think about some of those, uh, parties that you might go to or gatherings you might go to, that's quite a lot of people. Um, it's, but they're taking that into account as, you know, those placed with, Someone, uh, you know, a a professional or just casual bets between friends. So maybe there are a lot of those. And it's really just attributable to the growing expansion of legalized sports betting in the United States. More than half of all adults now live in an area where the practice is legal, including 33 states and then the District of Columbia. And so that's sort of what they're looking at. This uh, this game is also going to be played in a a place where uh, I think for the first time that there is going to be. Uh, sports betting, that's legal there. So that might account for some of it as well.
1: Well, we'll wrap on a little bit of music news. The 65th Grammy Awards had many glued to their seats to see who would come out on top in the most prestigious categories. With four more wins on Sunday, Beyoncé became the most decorated artist in Grammy history with a total of 32 awards. And Viola Davis won Best Audiobook, clinching the final award needed to secure EGOT status. She joins the 17 others who've won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Award. I wrote this book. I wrote this book to honor the six-year-old Viola, to honor her, her life, her joy, her trauma, everything. And it has just been such a journey. I just egot. And we'll leave it there. We've been here with Anita Kumar, Senior Editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico, Naftali Ben-David, a Politics Editor at The Washington Post, and Zoe Clark. Zoe's the Political Director for Michigan Radio. Thanks to you all. We'll be back with our global segment of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. Now let's turn to the global edition of the News Roundup. We've got a lot to get into this week, so let's get started. In Turkey, sounds of joy as a five-year-old boy is pulled from the debris in the city of Maras by volunteer rescue workers. But five days after a massive earthquake and several aftershocks, freezing temperatures and a lack of resources have many shifting from rescue to recovery. So far, estimates from the Associated Press put the death toll in excess of 20,000. What's ahead for the tens of thousands who are injured? Also coming up this hour, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visits the UK and meets with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and King Charles. And Pakistan buries a former president with a complicated relationship with his country. But we start with a devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Earlier today, I spoke to Duri Baskarin. She's a Turkey-based reporter for The World. And I started by asking her about where rescue efforts stand today.
9: So we've passed that sort of golden 72-hour window where, where we know that rescues are, are really successful, but actually we're still um, finding people where every once in a while we'll get news of uh, people who have actually survived in the rubble for 100 hours or more. Um, so rescue efforts are continuing, um, and at the same time, people can't really return to their homes because they're considered to be unstable. And so you see in a lot of these areas, people sleeping in tents or in cars. Um, And so it's also turning into a, not just a rescue effort, but now a humanitarian crisis.
1: Now you're in Gaziantep right now. Earlier this week, you traveled Mm -hmm. to Elbistan. Can you just help us understand what conditions are like there right now? Describe what you've seen.
9: Elbistan was probably the hardest hit city I've seen. And it's one of those things where you enter and it you can just kind of feel the death around you because so many of these buildings have just collapsed in on themselves. We got there pretty early. And so what was kind of amazing is that there were very few rescue crews. It seemed kind of like a hodgepodge group, but some people were volunteering. Sometimes it was neighbors trying to track down machinery. And and for the next couple of days, we saw as, as people sort of kept vigil outside uh, their relatives' homes, kind of praying that their family members were still alive under the rubble. But knowing that the time to save them was, was kind of quickly ticking by. And some people would get upset that a rescue effort would work on one site but not another. And, and it was just, it's devastating to see all of this happening at the same time.
1: Well, countries around the world have sent search crews and aid to the region. The top humanitarian aid agency in the U.S. government, USAID, has pledged $85 million in in urgent life-saving relief. But Dury, is the aid reaching people?
9: It's just an incredibly huge area. This is a 10-province area, uh, roughly the size of Philadelphia to Boston, that experienced this earthquake. And I think in the hardest-hit areas... It's incredibly difficult to reach. The roads are really bad. Uh, Sometimes traffic can be backed up for miles. You aren't always sure if a gas station will be stocked when you get there. So you have to pack in your gas. Um, So sometimes vehicles get stuck. To reach a place like we were in Elbistan, it just took a really long time for rescue crews to get there. They know people are trying to help, but it's never enough.
1: Let's hear from Turkey's President Erdogan. He visited the epicenter of one of the earthquake's aftershocks on Wednesday. All state institutions
10: are working on
1: this at the moment. On the first day, we experienced some issues. But then on the second day and today, the situation has been taken under control. Now, during his visit to affected areas, President Erdogan deflected criticism and he promised quake survivors that destroyed homes would be rebuilt within a year. He's also said the government will distribute 10,000 Turkish lira or 532 U.S. dollars to affected families. Duri, what have people you've spoken with said about the government's response so far?
9: It kind of falls in two baskets. Some of Erdogan's supporters have doubled down. On, and they want to make sure that, you know, when I'm interviewing them about it, they're like, put this on the radio because the world doesn't understand. Like, we, we are with our president. Other people are incredibly angry. Um, they, they point to the lack of building codes that are enforced. And how, all, how is it possible that all of these buildings in an earthquake area were built this way so that they could just fall down? When you walk through these towns, um, you see that some buildings are standing. It, it is possible to build safely in an earthquake-prone zone. And then every once in a while, especially in Gaziantep, for example, a lot of buildings are fine, and then you'll just walk by a five-story apartment building that's collapsed into dust. And, and I think people, they're, they're so angry, and they're, so, they're in so much pain that they're looking for something to blame. I think that a lot of people are looking at the government as not being prepared for this.
1: When you see images of the devastation in Turkey... It's hard I think for an international audience to to wrap their heads around what what recovery really looks like, how long it could take. As someone who's there on the ground reporting, what's your sense of what this means for the country?
9: To give you an example, I'm in Gaziantep now. Um and I was actually here 3 days ago to do some like food reporting stuff because it's actually a UNESCO city of cult- culinary heritage. And now that I'm here, I'm seeing all of these apartment buildings and they're just empty because they're not safe to be in, even if they're still standing. And there are all of these, in all of the parks, there are these tent cities um, where people are staying overnight, trying to stay warm. There's not a whole lot of food. Some grocery stores are open, but it's not always possible to get it to people. You can't cook. You can't, I mean, some electricity is available, but it, it kind of feels like everyone's camping at once
1: so with that in mind, what should we watch and listen for in the weeks and months ahead?
9: Look for what people are saying they need. Um, how do you get, I mean, this is going to be an incredibly logistical problem of how to help people who are still in this region rebuild their lives. And I think that the international community is going to have to figure out how to help Turkey do that. And uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to take a long time.
1: That's Duri in speaking with us. She's a Turkey-based reporter for The World from PRX. Dury, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jen. Now let's bring in our other guests to help us break down the week's top stories. Jennifer Williams is deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Welcome back, Jen. Hey, thanks for having me. Also with us, James Kitfield, a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. His most recent book is In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Hi, James.
2: Hi, good to be with you.
1: And Katrina Manson covers cyber and national security at Bloomberg. Katrina, great to
8: have you back. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So I want to stay with the earthquake and the devastating impact it's had in the region. On Thursday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke to reporters pressing the international community to do more for Turkey and Syria. First,
4: access. Roads are damaged. People are dying. Now is the time to explore all possible avenues to get aid and personnel into all affected areas. We must put people first.
1: Jen, we heard from Dury on the situation in Turkey, but as we know, Syria was also badly affected. Six U.N. aid trucks crossed the border yesterday. How much have international aid groups been able to help in that country? Very, very little uh, so far. We do have um, some good news that a second aid
10: convoy was actually able to reach this um, opposition-held enclave in Syria. That's the area that has been particularly difficult to get aid in because uh, there is just basically one single crossing um, that is open for humanitarian aid. So a UN spokesperson did say that this is the actual first Earthquake-related specific aid convoy that was able to get in—the one on Thursday that you mentioned—that was actually pre-planned before the earthquake uh, even hit. So it's one of the kind of regular aid um, convoys that go through, which is still helpful. But you know, the earthquake has caused a whole kind of host of, of new issues. So. Friday. Today, this is the first time that this big convoy of 14 trucks was able to cross in from Turkey uh, with food, clothes, blankets, all kinds of things, but it's still just a a drop in the bucket of the kind of aid that is needed. We're talking about a pocket of territory where some 4.5 million civilians live. This is a a little pocket of territory that is controlled by the rebels, Um, and, you know, they are incredibly dependent on humanitarian aid already, given, you know, they, they have suffered 12 years of civil war. So this comes on top of, you know, what was already a humanitarian crisis. They also recently suffered a big cholera outbreak there. So it's just tragedy on top of tragedy on top of tragedy. Most of the people who were there were already displaced by the Syrian civil war, so we're not talking places where, you know, people have been living in long-established family homes with all of their possessions. We're talking people who are already displaced. Mm -hmm. Now they're facing this earthquake. They're facing extreme, unusually cold temperatures right now, snow, um, and, and, you know, just all of that kind of on top of uh, you know, the the 12 years of civil war and the fact that it's hard to get aid into this area.
1: The U.N. says more than 300,000 people have been killed in Syria's civil war since 2011. We got this question from Stephen, who asks, with Russia involved in Ukraine, are they contributing to the earthquake relief effort in Syria? James, just remind us of the role Russia's playing in Syria right now.
2: Well, it's not a very helpful one. They, the, the role that Russia's played for many years is to prop up the regime of Assad, who's really the butcher of that civil war. Um, and they have pulled many of those troops out uh, that they had there, and they, and it was it was not humanitarian aid or it was basically just military forces that were in Syria to prop up you know uh, the Assad, as I said, and they 've pulled many of those forces out for the ukraine war, so there 's not really a huge amount. Uh, of Russian forces there, and they have not been very helpful. And the, and the last people they would be helpful to is the the the, the people in the northwest that we're talking about, who basically were the rebels that they were bombing their hospitals and bombing their um, schools. Uh, so that, you know, Russia would be no help at all there. And, and you know, Syria has been a, a bleeding wound for more than a decade. And this is, this is the danger, is that there's no recognized government, uh, you know, in that area. So when you have a disaster like this, and, and my heart goes out to these people... Um, there's no government you can interface with to get um, relief in there. There's no, you know, so the UN. It took four days to get the first, you know, convoy in there. It just goes to show you that that, that frozen civil war is, is remains a bleeding wound on the international community, and, and it's and, you know it's going to cause us troubles uh, until that situation is eventually settled.
1: Well, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad spoke briefly to reporters in the earthquake-hit city of Aleppo, saying, quote, the West prioritized politics over the humanitarian situation, end quote. Katrina, how is the civil war and al-Assad's isolation from the global community affecting rescue and aid efforts there?
8: There are really only two ways in. Um, either through the government-controlled areas or across the border in Turkey, and neither have have been working. Nothing really is coming from uh, the Syrian government. The international aid community is certainly not sending anything through that government uh, route. And the single border crossing uh, from Turkey, you know, the White Helmets have been saying, White Helmets being the the, the volunteers who um, have worked in those rebel-held areas since uh, the the beginning of of the civil war, they've been saying this is... um, Death on top of death, and and they they simply haven't had the support that they need from uh, UN and international aid across that border crossing, which which now is beginning to open up, um, but 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 very little. And of course, as we heard from your report from the ground, uh, when you are trying to rescue people, time is critical.
1: Well, let's turn to another story we've been following for nearly a year: Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. February 24th is fast approaching, and that will mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres offered a warning. On Monday, he addressed the UN National Assembly.
4: The Russian invasion of Ukraine is inflicting untold suffering on the Ukrainian people with profound global implications. The prospects for peace keep diminishing. The chances of further escalation and bloodshed keep growing. I fear the world is not sleepwalking into a wider war, I fear it's doing so with its eyes wide open.
1: For most of the last year since the war began, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has defended his country from within its borders. But this week, he took his second known trip abroad after one to the U.S. in December. Zelensky landed in the United Kingdom before heading to France and Belgium. On Wednesday, the Ukrainian president stood beside UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak during a press conference. Here's Sunak.
0: First of all, we've been very clear And we've been clear for a long time that when it comes to the provision of military assistance to Ukraine, nothing is off the table. And that's because we're determined to ensure that Vladimir, the president and his people, can be victorious against Russian aggression. And we've backed up that rhetoric with action.
1: Nothing is off the table. Those are strong words from the British Prime Minister. Katrina, what's on the table?
8: Well, what uh, Zelensky wants is fighter jets. Um, he He secured a breakthrough with tanks that that was actually something led by by the British and then US Germany, Netherlands Denmark have all followed and now he wants fighter jets, uh, modern fighter jets that's because he thinks um, uh, a, a new offensive is going to begin later this month. I think everyone's made very clear that fighter jets are um, a, a, a long term prospect. Uh, you have to train. Pilots. Uh, there's a question about air defences, whether they would simply get shot down. And, of course, uh, what you referred to at the beginning, uh, risks of escalation. So I, I think even Zelensky knows he won't get fighter jets now, but he's not getting nose. And that's one of the big takeaways that he's had from this uh, whirlwind European tour that he's had this week. What he does want uh, more immediately is long-range missiles, artillery, ammunition. And he's also getting a huge uh, moral commitment, uh, exactly the kinds of words that he wants to hear. For a long time, uh, Western officials started warning that uh, Western populations simply wouldn't have the oomph to keep supporting Ukraine. And now I think what you hear from uh, European US leaders is talking about Ukrainian victory. Uh, It's not so much about peace so much as Ukrainian victory. And really, it's only the Germans holding back on that, suggesting Russia must not win the war. Um, But most people going further and saying they they expect um, to keep supporting until Ukraine wins.
1: Jen, from your perspective,
8: what's been notable
1: about Zelensky's visit to European countries? Well, I mean, you know, I
10: think it's really interesting to see, um, you know, he did get this kind of victory that was the big focus, right? The last time that we were all kind of talking about this was tanks, tanks, tanks. And then he gets, you know, the commitment for tanks. And then the next thing is is fighter jets. And I think it's really important to realize that, you know, when he gets this kind of one victory, it, it's not that, okay, great, now we're going to go win the war, right? This is a, a long-term battle that they are really, you know, kind of gearing up for, especially as the winter starts to thaw out uh, in the coming months. We are very much expecting, they are very much expecting to see a renewed Russian offensive. We don't know what that's going to look like. You know, it, <laughs> Russia, uh, I wouldn't necessarily count them out yet, right? They keep, um, they, they still are massing troops. They still have the ability to, to cause very serious damage. We just saw another round of missile barrages coming through uh, from the Russians just today. So, you know, they are, uh, Zelensky is really trying to to make sure that he has the equipment and the commitments that he needs to fight this over the longer term. You know, I think if we're talking about what's on the table, you might want to picture this as a really, really, really long table. And if, you know, tanks were kind of on the table, uh, those fighter jets might be on the table, but they're at the really far end. So it's not really clear when or if, uh, you know, uh, Rishi Sunak and the UK is going to actually kind of get down to that end of the table. Um, the Prime Minister did order the Defense Secretary to look at ways the UK could potentially provide Ukraine with fighter jets. They're going to start doing some training of the Ukrainian Air Force on NATO platforms, etc. But I wouldn't look to see those fighter jets coming anytime necessarily soon. Um, but I think you know, just the the bottom line is Zelensky is continuing to be the wartime leader that you know, he's been so far, he went and met with King Charles, almost called him Prince Charles, oops, Uh, King Charles, he showed up, you know, to meet the king dressed in his kind of traditional um, military garb, which is a a sweatshirt and and fatigues, uh, which got a lot of kind of eyebrow raising, but he is trying to make the point that he is a wartime leader fighting a very bloody, deadly war, and that he needs to continue to do everything he can to get that equipment and that commitment from the West.
1: Well, while Ukraine is hoping for more aid and weaponry, its military says it has strong intelligence warnings of an imminent large-scale attack from Russia. James, what details do we have about this expected attack?
2: Well, as you remember, the, the, you know, Russia basically had this call-up of, of uh, you know, basically a draft of 300,000 troops. It looks like they are about ready to throw them into the fight. They have, they've been thrown some of them into the fight, but not not in mass. So I, the, the concern is there's a big offensive coming. Um, the Ukrainians are talking about 300,000 Russian troops. Uh, the U.S. is saying 200,000-plus. Uh, it's worth noting that's much bigger than the original invasion force. Um, that was turned back last year. So there is an offensive coming, it looks like. And I think probably Russia wants to move before, as we said, these weapons can can arrive, these tanks, um, Patriot missile batteries, etc. can arrive in Ukraine. So, um, yeah, I think Russia is about to move and we need to back uh, Zelensky as, as, as heavily as we can.
1: Well, I want to talk about one more story from the region this week. And this goes back nine years to March 2014, when Ukrainian separatists shut down a plane over eastern Ukraine with a Russian missile. 298 people on board Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 died. Now, this week, an international team released its investigation into the incident, the result of eight and a half years of work. Katrina, what did the investigation reveal?
8: Well, the investigation showed that um, it, 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 on, on balance, they felt that Putin had probably sent, um, uh, given permission for the missile to be sent to um, the rebels who ended up using it. And um, it, it, it came with both positive and negative for those who were really hoping for answers. Um, the There wasn't enough to... Um, press charges, they felt. But there are other um, investigations underway. There are other efforts pursuing that. But I think it really shows that they feel that they've tied Putin to this event. Um, The Russians, of course, uh, have never commented on that, but they did even have recordings, references about the president saying, this is the person who makes the decision uh, about sending the missile.
1: Mm. So Jen, what does that mean for the loved ones of those who, who lost people in that flight? What does accountability look like going forward?
10: Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to be super thrilled that they are concluding this investigation, right? This has been going on for eight and a half years now. Um, Tons of, you know, evidence that they looked at, um, you know, as Katrina said, intercepted conversations, video footage, all kinds of stuff. Um, Now, a a panel of Dutch judges in November did find three men. These are two Russians and one Ukrainian guilty of involvement um, in deployment of the missile that was actually used to, to shoot down the jet. But If, you know, people were – if family members, loved ones were looking for Putin himself to face any kind of accountability, that was always going to be, uh, you know, highly unlikely given that he is a sitting head of state and is likely to be for the foreseeable future. Um, The fact that, you know, they didn't actually have enough, uh, you know, conclusive evidence – uh, to bring any actual charges, directly tie him um, to the incident is going to be, you know, bittersweet. They they provided what they could and said, that, you know, look, it looks like he probably approved sending equipment. We're not sure if he necessarily approved the specific missile that was used. Um, you know, we don't have evidence that he ordered the shoot down itself, anything like that. But this is about as close as they were ever going to be able to probably get, and yet that is— you know, not exactly going to be what the the loved ones and and you know surviving victims, uh, uh, surviving families of these victims uh, wanted to hear.
1: We are rounding up this week's news with Jennifer Williams, she's deputy editor at Foreign Policy; James Kitfield, senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress; and Katrina Manson, cyber and national security reporter at Bloomberg. I'm Jen White. You're listening to One A. One story we've reported on extensively is the war in Tigray. You'll remember a truce was signed between the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan troops in November. It was meant to end years of hostilities and fighting and to ensure the withdrawal of all foreign troops. The global human rights group's Amnesty International has confirmed that Eritrean troops were involved in the hostilities. But both U.S. officials and eyewitnesses on the condition of anonymity have said Eritrean troops are still in the region. This week, the Eritrean president, Isaias F. Warky made a rare appearance before the international media and dismissed claims of atrocities like human rights violations, rape, and looting, calling them a, quote, fantasy. Let's turn now to global energy markets. This week, oil companies announced their 2022 earnings, and they looked great, for their shareholders, while much of the world was complaining about high gas prices, oil companies were raking in record profits, more than doubling what they made the year before. Katrina, just how good of a year was it for oil companies?
8: Yeah, they're incredibly pleased. You could almost say they're they're crowing. Um, they they've done so well that they've also announced. Um, uh, shareholder payouts, stock buybacks um, on on a scale that really is unprecedented. So Chevron, they're doing a 75 billion dollar Um, buyback. That's five times more than anyone was expecting. And I think, you know, it took the US president this week in his State of the Union address to to frame his response to this $200 billion profit. Um, He he said it's outrageous. Um, It's outrageous to be making uh, that much money amidst a global energy crisis where we know people are really suffering.
1: Let's hear from the president here.
3: Big Oil just reported
1: its profits, record profits.
3: Last year, they made two $100 $100 billion in the midst of a global energy crisis. I think it's outrageous. Why? They invested too little of that profit to increase domestic production. And when I talked to a couple of them, they say well, We're afraid you're going to shut down all the oil wells and all the uh, oil refineries anyway, so why should we invest in them? I said, We're going to need oil for at least another decade, and that's going to exceed
1: <laughs> and beyond that we're going to need it. Uh, James, people around the world are still facing high energy bills this winter. How are governments and consumers reacting to this news?
2: <laughs> Not well, but um, it's to be expected. You know, unfortunately, oil is, we've all known, as a global market. So um, where when prices rise and there, and there's a shortage, the, go- the, you know, the oil companies, you know, make out like gangbusters. Um, I, I will say there, there have been some some positive developments primarily Europe has weaned itself off of Russian oil to a large degree, and they are still doing that and that 's all to the good because that was always a a sword over their head that was held by the Kremlin but uh, you know turkey china India have stepped into that into that gap, and they are now account for seventy percent of the of, of russia 's oil exports so you know, the sanctions are, are proving much more difficult, I think, than a lot of people originally had, opposed, had supposed. And um, you, know, in a global market when there's a shortage, uh, people who produce oil are, are going to make out like gangbusters. I think that's just reality. Well, with
1: its earning announcement, BP also said it would slow down its plan to slash oil and gas production, which is a main driver of climate change. They previously promised to cut output by 40 percent by 2030 as part of its shift toward renewables. James, again, when we look at that global market, what is this signal for the move away from a reliance on oil?
2: Well, and you heard that clip. It was kind of interesting. when everyone started laughing when the president, President Biden said, you know, we're going to need it for at least another decade. The fact is, we're going to need it for, for we're going to need oil for decades. Uh, but we need to start now um, and, and weaning ourselves off. It is going to be a long, slow process. And um, you know, in the meantime, I think the oil companies are, are positioned to make a lot of money. And I think what Biden is trying to say is they should start investing in green energy now with all that money.
1: Let's turn now to some major changes in the Church of England. On Thursday, the National Assembly voted to let priests bless same-sex marriages and civilian partnerships, but continued to ban church weddings for those same couples. And balloon news continued this week. The Biden administration says the Chinese balloon shot down by the U.S. was equipped to collect intelligence signals as part of a huge military-linked aerial spy program that's targeted more than 40 countries. Katrina, the U.S. released some of the first few images of this balloon that was shot down. For, for people who didn't see it overhead, what
8: were Americans looking at? Well, it is really a big white balloon, uh, but it is a 200-foot balloon. And most of the images we've seen have been of Navy boats retrieving it once it's been shot out of the air by an F-22, um, and then of FBI workers beginning to pour over some of the um, you know, the white folds and of the equipment. And of course, we've seen it in the air. And I think State Department has been very keen to point out this week, after um, a lot of work, that... Uh, there were antennas, there were um, solar panels, and I had spent all of last week uh, talking to people about side lobes, you know, what exactly was going on, and that they had been telling me there was a potential that uh, equipment like this could intercept signals, so not just take pictures, but intercept signals, and, and that, in fact, is now what the U.S. is, is briefing out publicly and, and using these pictures to support it.
1: Well, we know that there's another balloon that spent some time over South America, but Katrina, how many, how many balloons are there out there?
8: <laughs> I don't think they're giving a number on how many balloons there are today, but the US are saying uh, there have been balloons in 40 countries across five continents. They have confirmed now on record as well as in briefings that um, there have been four across the US in the past, three of which were in the Trump administration. But they have themselves said, you know, they've had an intelligence gap on looking at these balloons and they need to do more to figure out how to detect them in future. That's quite an admission from the US. Well, James, how much information
1: do you think the U.S. government can clean from the remains of this balloon? Can they find out what may have been collected over the U.S.?
2: Well, potentially, and the FBI is, you know, is, is studying this in a lab now of what's coming up from the bottom of the ocean. Uh, but a, a, as my colleague mentioned, I think the signals intelligence is the most uh, the most worrisome because they flew over, obviously, major ICBM fields that we have and um, and if they are collecting signals intelligence, which means our communications, that if they, if they get a sort of an idea of how our communications work with our, you know, strategic, part of our strategic triad, that's worrisome. Having said that, the U-2 went up there and saw this balloon early on when it came into our airspace and apparently alerted the Pentagon, which then shut down a lot of its communications, so they couldn't gather that information. So, I'm, I'm waiting to hear uh, this whole balloon gate thing. I, I, you know, I'm knowing what you know about Chinese espionage, we are their number one target. They have got thousands of Chinese agents in our country. They have got satellites. So, I'm not sure this is quite the the, the the balloon gate that everyone's making. but I, I want to hear what the Pentagon has to say. So far, they were the ones who said we don't want to shoot it down over, you know, land and, and risk, you know, hurting someone on the ground. Let's wait till it gets over water. So I'm waiting to hear what the Pentagon says. I don't think that they sound nearly as alarmed as a lot of the politicians, well, Jen, maybe the Pentagon isn't alarmed, but
1: when something like this is is clearly apparent to the American people, when it's literally in the sky, what does that mean for Americans and, and their expectations of what they're going to learn about how we're, how we're being watched? Yeah, that, that's actually the big problem here,
10: right? Everybody knows that we spy on China, China spies on us. We spy on our own allies. Our allies spy on us. So of course that, you know, we're spying on China and of course China is spying on us. The problem is that, you know, you're not supposed to get caught. Right. <laughs> like there are, there are rules to this. Um, We know, you know, we pretty much know who a lot of the likely spies in Washington are, right? We, we kind of know this stuff. The problem is you're supposed to keep it discreet. You're supposed to uh, not have a giant balloon flying over farmland in the middle of the United States. So that, that's kind of the problem here is, you know, it, you, when you see a balloon flying over your house, uh, people are going to say, uh, hey, wait a second, what's that? And, you know, start talking and then Washington has to look like they are, you know, being very tough. And, of course, it provides fodder for opposition politicians in the GOP, et cetera, to say, look, we're not being tough enough. We didn't shoot down that balloon fast enough, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, yes, it very much does reveal a a potential intelligence collection gap, et cetera, or our ability to understand that, you know, and track these balloons. But a lot of it is very much, uh, you know, visibility, and uh, public relations at this point and saying, you know, how dare you violate U.S. sovereign airspace, et cetera. Yes, that's true. But also, eh, we do the same kind of thing all the time, too, in China,
8: likely so.
1: We heard from Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson Mao Ning on Thursday. She repeated her nation's insistence that the balloon was a civilian meteorological airship that had blown off course and that the U.S. had, quote unquote, overreacted by shooting it down. And the China's also accused the US of engaging in information warfare on this matter. China's defense minister also refused to take a phone call from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. So we've got sort of the the domestic response. But Jen, how much is this stirring up an already tense relationships between the US and China?
10: It definitely comes at a really awkward time, right? Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, was uh, packing his bags and getting ready to get on the plane to head for a big, important meeting, you know, with his counterparts in Beijing. And then, you know, Balloongate balloon gate happened. And so he canceled slash postponed indefinitely, maybe, that trip. Um, You know, China was very much hoping to maybe have some kind of reset with the U.S. to try to, you know, reestablish, you know, clear communication ties, try to maybe get the U.S.-China relationship back on track a little bit more cooperative, and then this happened. So it's a very awkward timing. Um, You know, it's very unfortunate timing. We still don't know why it happened this way, whether it was just an accident, whether this was a kind of routine thing that the Chinese, you know, leadership, political leadership didn't even really pay attention to because the military is constantly doing this sort of thing and didn't realize, hey, maybe hold off on the balloon right now. It's, It's a bad time. Um, so it's it's coming at a, at a rough time, um, and I think, you know, it looks so far with the Chinese, you know, apparently not picking up the phone that things aren't going to get smoothed over in the next week or two. I think eventually it will. I think this could potentially be beneficial in the sense that it could help hopefully remind both the U.S. and China that we need to have pretty clear communication channels because you know, it's not just balloons. We are both nuclear powers. So I think, you know, it potentially could help in that respect over the long term. But for right now, things are going to stay pretty awkward and pretty rocky between the two of us.
1: Well, Katrina, from your seat as a national security reporter, I'm curious to hear what you'll be watching for in the weeks ahead.
8: On balloons. Um, I I, I think this this story has got to pop, really. Um, The the US is just having to play catch up. You know, you've got Biden saying, no, no, it's not making US-China relations worse. Um, And and there's a little bit of embarrassment, I think, between and among the agencies, you know, to what extent they've got to play a role supporting the administration's uh, very political fallout that they're facing in Congress, and to what extent they've come, got to say, you know, we, 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 we have an intelligence gap and this is how we're going to fix it. I must say they're putting a tremendous amount of information out into the public eye very quickly, and that always means there's some kind of political problem that they're feeling they've got to do that. So I think we probably will learn a little bit more about the equipment, one thing um, officials are looking into is where were those components made? Some of those components apparently have English language on them from the balloon. So who was getting that? How was What was China's supply chain like, getting those bits in? Um, which company actually manufactured the balloon? I think the US already has a, a good idea of that. They say they had a contract with um, the PLA. So I think we'll find out a lot more about the nuts and bolts and the way it was actually put together. I don't expect there'll be too many more balloons floating over the US. I don't think China will want to risk that soon. Well, let's move on to
1: the UK. The largest strike in the history of the United Kingdom's National Health Service took place earlier this week. On Monday, tens of thousands of nurses and ambulance workers walked off the job. Nurse Rebecca Cosgrave spoke with Reuters.
8: This isn't what nurses do. Nurses are notoriously bad at standing up for themselves. And I think it's just driven to crunch point really stole the bro- broke the camels back at this
1: point James what are nurses and ambulance workers demanding
2: more pay <laughs> they have uh, you know they, the the britain is in in the midst of its winter of discontent you know they have got huge inflation problems and the government is is loath to you know spend more and, and increase the salary of the nurses yet they've because the pay is so low they've lost i think 25,000 nurses in recent years so they've got these long waiting lists for the National Health Service, and it's, it's just a mess, and, and the, the government's afraid to, to grant them a lot more pay because, again, it's an inflationary move at a time when inflation's kind of running rampant. Well, meanwhile,
1: a third day of strikes against a proposal to raise the minimum retirement age in France continued Tuesday. More than 750,000 people took to the streets, according to estimates from the French government. A poll released last month found 60 percent of French citizens opposed raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. Jen, briefly, are these strikes having any impact on the government's decision to move forward with its plans?
10: You know, it looks like they may actually be having a bit of an impact. Um, It looks like a a handful of lawmakers from Macron's own party, um, you know, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, Are maybe threatening to vote against the pension bill Uh, as the movement continues. uh, You know this protest movement; it gains momentum. Um, You know we saw some over a million people take to the streets. I think recently, uh, it's down a little bit (laughs) to seven hundred fifty thousand. You know seven hundred fifty thousand, which down to a seven hundred fifty thousand is still a whole lot of people. So it looks like there is a bit of movement. Now there is another option that Macron could do related. To the Constitution to try to kind of do a workaround if he doesn't have a majority in Parliament. But it does look like, you know, this is very disruptive, obviously, to, to you know, the economy and to business and to daily life. That's the point of protests and, and strikes and things like that. Um, so I, I do think we're starting to see now whether it causes them to abandon it altogether. I, I doubt that. This is something that, you know, Macron very much sees as the only way to preserve the pension system without raising taxes or increasing the country's debt. So, you know, we're going to see who
1: who blinks first. We're speaking to Jen Williams, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy, James Kitfield, Senior Fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, and Katrina Manson. She covers cyber and national security at Bloomberg. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. I want to move now to Pakistan. Former President Pervez Musharraf died this week at 79. He seized power in a bloodless coup in 1999 by ousting the elected government of former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, whose younger brother Shabaz Sharif is now the country's prime minister. What kind of relationship did Musharraf have with the West? Yet.
10: Well, uh, you know, most of what Americans probably remember uh, and know Musharraf for was being, you know, a key ally of the United States following the 9-11 terror attacks, right? He tried to make himself this kind of, you know, central figure and, you know, by proxy his country as this really key ally in fighting Islamic extremism. Um you know he was not particularly effective in doing that. I think uh, most of, uh, Americans, many Americans, kind of remember uh, that era of you know questioning whether Pakistan was doing all it really could be to actually fight terrorism, given that the you know the the military intelligence services also, with one hand, while saying they're fighting terrorism, were also supporting um, you know the the Pakistani Taliban and other groups. Um, so it, very much this kind of idea of can Pakistan be trusted? Can you know, musharraf be trusted? Is he actually doing what he can? We're giving, you know, millions of dollars in in military um, and humanitarian, et cetera, economic aid kind of in uh, <laughs> in this kind of trade deal that they would help fight Islamic extremism. and it didn't seem to particularly be that effective. And then, You know, meanwhile, at home, he suspended Pakistan's constitution, uh, did a whole bunch of things that were really controversial, which is why he ended up losing power. So I think, you know, he leaves a very complicated legacy, both in the West and in, in his own country.
1: While staying in Pakistan, the economy is facing a downward spiral. The country is still suffering the devastating effects of monsoon flooding last summer that displaced 8 million people. There's rocking inflation and ongoing financial mismanagement. James, is the country at risk of defaulting? And if so, what does that mean?
2: It's very much at the risk of defaulting. And uh, we, we, we you know, have yet to be seen what that means, but it's not going to be good. Um there basically only hope, it looks like, is going to be an IMF bailout. Uh, their currency devaluation has been the worst in its history. Um, their economy is just really a mess, as you, as you mentioned, you know, for a large degree because of those floods last year. But it's never been a particularly efficient you know, government or an efficient economy. And now we're looking at, um, you know, you've got a nuclear power, you've got Afghanistan next door with the Taliban having taken control, destabilizing the region. And it's a nuclear power, and you still have you know, Islamic extremist terrorist groups acting within Pakistan. So it's it's blinking as a red light to the international community as a nuclear power that is really destabilizing.
1: That's James Kitfield. He's a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. His most recent book is In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Also with us, Jennifer Williams. She's the deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. And Katrina Manson. She covers cyber and national security at Bloomberg. Thanks to you all for joining us. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This show was originally broadcast from Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and thanks to everyone at Michigan Radio who helped us during our visit. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.
9: All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do
7: about it.